Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm your host, Claire Navarro. In today's podcast, we continue delving into the space sciences by bringing you Dr. Christine Floss. I'm uh, Christine Floss. I'm a research professor in the physics department. Dr. Floss joined Hold That Thought to talk about her work with pre-solar grains, also known as stardust. But as with Bradley Jolliffe from last week's podcast, I also asked Floss to share what first made her interested in studying outer space. If you tuned in last week, you may notice some similarities in the stories. That actually, I, I have to thank um, an undergraduate professor of mine. Um, I was at Indiana University doing my doing my undergraduate degree in geology, and he actually came up randomly to me at some point in the hallway and said, oh, if you're ever interested in working on, on some moon rocks, let me know. And it had somehow never occurred to me that people could actually work on the rocks that were returned by the Apollo missions. And I was just, I was hooked just instantly. And so um, I, did, I did an undergraduate thesis project with him, and then uh, later on for graduate school, I thought, yeah, this is definitely what I want to continue doing. Both Floss and Jolliffe found their way to Washington University in St. Louis and became involved with its McDonald Center for the Space Sciences, which is... A group that consists of uh, people from physics and also people from the Earth and Planetary Sciences Department. Professors from multiple departments are involved with the McDonald Center because the types of things that they work on are quite interdisciplinary. Basically, the focus is largely on trying to understand the solar system and then beyond that, um, the universe. Questions specific to the solar system include... How did the solar system form? How did it um, evolve? What are the materials that it originally came from? The type of work that Floss and her colleagues do is sometimes called astronomy in the lab. This is different from astronomy as it's traditionally viewed, because normally when you think about astronomy, you probably think about looking into telescopes. What we do instead is we take the meteorite samples that uh, that are found here on Earth and we look at them to try to uh, look at the stars also. We also heard about this process in last week's podcast, which focused on meteorites from Earth's moon. But the meteorites that Floss works with come from much farther away, and she's looking for something specific in these meteorites, pre-solar grains, or stardust. Those can give us direct information about the stars that we can then compare with what the astronomers see with their telescopes. To understand what pre-solar grains are and how they provide information about stars in the solar system, first we have to remember how our solar system formed. Basically, the solar system evolved from an enormous cloud of gas and dust. All of that material came from stars that existed before our sun and our solar system existed. So the pre-solar grains that we're looking for are actually small, tiny grains of dust that were formed in other stars um, and that were part of this large cloud that the solar system formed from. By tiny, she means really tiny. The word grain might make you think of a grain of sand, but these are grains that you definitely can't see with the naked eye. A good reference would be um, a normal strand of human hair is about 50 microns in size, and the grains that we look at are going to be like a factor of four or five smaller than that. One good place to find these pre-solar grains is in primitive meteorites. And in this case, primitive means more than old, though these meteorites are in fact very, very old. By primitive, what we mean basically is that these are meteorites, they kind of accumulated, aggregated together uh, four and a half billion years ago when the solar system formed. 
and they have not undergone any kinds of changes since then. They haven't experienced any heating, they haven't experienced any, any water, which would tend to like change the minerals that were in there originally. Almost everything else in the solar system has undergone a lot of heating or, and modification since that time period, uh, like the Earth, for example, which is always undergoing plate tectonics and magmatism and things like that. And all of those things sort of you know, destroy what was originally present and create new minerals and new rocks. So these are meteorites that really have sort of captured a snapshot of what the solar system was like right back when, when everything was forming. Since these grains are so incredibly tiny, you might wonder, how does one go about finding them within these primitive meteorites? What we're looking for is certain isotopic signatures. For those of us who haven't thought about chemistry in a while, an isotope is each of an element that contains equal number of protons, but different numbers of neutrons in their nuclei. A good example would be oxygen. Oxygen has um, oxygen 16, 17, and 18 uh, that have the same number of protons but different numbers of neutrons. In our solar system and on Earth and, and everywhere in the solar system, to the first order, the proportions of the 16 and 17 and 18 will be the same in all materials. This is not true for the materials that Floss works with. Different stars produce different proportions of isotopes. But in order to see the differences in isotopic compositions, Floss and her colleagues have to use very specialized equipment. We have an instrument called the NanoSims. It, it's an instrument that was designed specifically for our research, uh, for our pre-solar grain research. And it's a, basically, it's a mass spectrometer, um, and what we're looking at again is looking at these isotopic compositions. But it's different from, from most instruments of its kind in that it was designed specifically to have, uh, first of all, very high spatial resolution, because the grains that we're looking at are so small that we need something that can look at things on that scale. And then the second thing is that because there's, again, because they're so small, there's a limited number of atoms in these particles. And so you want to be able to measure as many of them as possible. And, and so this instrument was specifically designed to do that so that we could look at smaller and smaller particles. And in fact, uh, people in the lab here worked in collaboration with the company Kamika to design the instrument. Um, and we have the very first one um, of its kind. So that's, that's sort of our workhorse uh, right now for, <laughs> for looking at these pre-solar grains. So using the nanosims, one of Floss's graduate students recently found 138 pre-solar grains in a slice of primitive meteorite that was found in Antarctica. And one of those grains was something unusual, a grain of silica. Floss found the first silica grain in a meteorite in 2009, and only a handful have been discovered since. The silica is interesting because it was not, it's not predicted at all by any of the um, condensation models. And astronomers had sort of speculated that uh, silica would be something that might, might exist based on their spectra. And so by us finding us, uh, you know, an actual grains of um, silica, it basically confirmed some of the things that they were looking at. The two most recently found grains were especially exciting finds because they may have been created in the same supernova. For these sorts of discoveries, this back and forth between computer modeling and the type of work that Floss and her students do is an important part of the job. One, one aspect to it is using these grains um, and, the comp and the isotopic compositions in different elements to try to help the modelers come up with better models for what they're doing. So sometimes we will see compositions that don't exactly match what their predictions are, and so they can then go back and um, refine their models or you know, look at different aspects of it to sort of uh, try to understand what the grain data are telling us and things that they haven't considered. 
In addition to being of use for improving computer models, these pre-solar grains provide information that helps scientists address big questions about the solar system. The other part of it is learning more about how our solar system formed. So for example, in a, a, different, a different part of my work um, involves looking at the samples that were returned by NASA's Stardust mission, which uh, went out to Cometville 2 and brought back samples of cometary dust for us. This Stardust mission launched in 1999, but it didn't meet up with the Cometville 2 until 2004, and it finally came back to Earth in 2006. It was the first NASA mission to return particles from beyond the moon's orbit. So we've also been looking at um, looking for pre-solar grains in those particular samples because we expect the comets are way out there in the outer parts of the solar nebula where it's stayed very cold. And so that seems like the likely place to look for material that has not been changed over the history of the solar system. So the expectation was you would find an awful lot of pre-solar grains in those things. That was the expectation. But what did they actually find, you ask? The results were not initially were not exactly what we expected. And, um, and part of it has to do with the impact process, the way the samples were collected. But part of it also has brought us a lot of new information about how the solar system formed. For example, work that Floss has been peripherally involved with has shown that a lot of the minerals in these samples must not have formed in distant stars, but instead in the inner part of the solar system where it was hot. And so what that's telling us is actually a lot about how, much, how material gets transferred from the inner to the outer part of the solar system, which again then can inform models of how the solar system and the disk and all formed. So these are clearly huge questions. But the information that these pre-solar grains can provide also helps address even more fundamental questions about the universe. I think the biggest thing is really understanding more about how the elements formed. Um, and that's what the pre-solar grains let us do by looking at finding these and seeing what, uh, what, their, what the isotopic compositions are for different elements. Um, we really look at information about how the elements themselves formed. And that's you know, pretty much as, as basic as you can get. And, and, and I find that fascinating. And this basic question, how do elements form, brings us back to the computer models Floss discussed earlier. What we're finding is that the way people think it forms, some of the elements form theoretically, is not, must, must not be completely correct because what we're seeing in some of the grains is very different from, from what their predictions are. So they go back then. I mean, it's really sort of an iterative process. They can go back to their models then and try to see why they're not getting what we're seeing. Because the grains really provide sort of the ground truth data for this. Everything sounds good in theory, but it's got to fit what, what we actually observe. Within all of these careful observations, Floss still gets to occasionally sit back and marvel at the fact that she's working with specks of the universe that are some 4.5 billion years old. A lot of times you get caught up in sort of just the daily grind of it, and, and there's all the little boring things. but. Especially when I get to get the chance to talk to other people, it does it does amaze me that I actually get paid for doing this, <laughs> for learning something so fascinating about how the universe works, and it's a it's a real lucky thing for me. <laughs> Many thanks to Christine Floss for contributing to hold that thought. You can find a link to her faculty page on our website, thought.artsci.wustel.edu. That's thought dot A-R-T-S-C-I dot W-U-S-T-L dot E-D-U. You can also search for Hold That Thought on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, iTunes, and PRX. Thanks for listening. <laughs>